The negative side of it is that it's a monoculture. It's a monoculture in the United States. It's a monoculture in most places where there's an entrenched group of developers. And it's a bit difficult to understand why there's not more movement, although there's starting to be a global awareness that, you know, if you want to build products and services that the whole world can get behind and embrace, you want to do that with a diverse group of developers and a diverse group of thinkers. You don't want to build anything in a monoculture and then try to flog it abroad. Das ist die Stimme von Nakima Steffelbauer, der Gründerin von Frauenloop. Wie sie benachteiligte Frauen für die Tech-Szene fit macht und welche Probleme Algorithmen darstellen können, die alles andere als neutral sind, das hören Sie jetzt. Damit herzlich willkommen zum Tech-Briefing vom 24. September 2020. Mein Name ist Daniel Fiene und wie jeden Donnerstag gibt es hier für Sie Ihr Update in Sachen Digitalisierung. Heute gibt es unsere Female Founders Edition. Zusammen mit der Investorin Gesa Michaika und der Flying Health Geschäftsführerin Lina Behrens laden wir einmal im Monat Gründerinnen zu uns auf das Medienschiff Pioneer One in Berlin ein. Und bei diesem Event lauschen wir und hören zu, wie die Gründerinnen ihre Unternehmensgeschichte erzählen. Das sind wirklich immer sehr inspirierende Veranstaltungen. Und in dieser Woche war unser Oberdeck so voll, wie es gerade zu Corona-Zeiten überhaupt möglich ist. Wir haben gemeinsam der Geschichte von Nakima Steffelbauer gelauscht. In dem Gespräch, was Sie jetzt auch hören können, werden wir nicht nur erfahren, wie Nakima Frauen hilft, in der Tech-Szene Karriere zu machen. Wir sprechen auch über künstliche Intelligenz mit Vorurteilen, also Algorithmen, die nicht ohne Bias auskommen. Am Wochenende habe ich da nämlich ein beeindruckendes Beispiel erlebt. Twitter wählt aus großen Fotos immer eine Vorschau aus. Und da gibt es einen Algorithmus, der den Ausschnitt auswählt. Wenn auf diesen großen Fotos mehrere Köpfe zu sehen sind, sagen wir mal ein Mann und eine Frau, dann wählt der Algorithmus ein Gesicht aus, was dann in der Vorschau gezeigt wird. Und Sie ahnen es, welches Gesicht dieser Algorithmus auswählt? Genau, den Mann. Egal, wo die Gesichter auf dem Foto angeordnet sind, es landet immer der Mann in der Vorschau. Wie ist das mit einer weißen oder schwarzen Person? Auch hier gibt es eine erste Wahl. Die weiße Person gewinnt. Immer. Ein Paradebeispiel für Algorithmen, die entweder von einer nicht diversen Programmiertruppe erstellt worden sind, ich sag mal so, Hallo Silicon Valley, oder einfach mit einem Datenzept trainiert worden sind, das ebenfalls nicht divers genug ist. Nicht umsonst spielt das Thema Ethik bei der Erstellung von Programmen mittlerweile eine immer größere Rolle. Auch darüber haben wir mit Nakima Steffelbauer gesprochen. In dieser Ausgabe der Female Founders Edition habe ich mit Nina Behrens durch das Gespräch geführt. Und wir haben zunächst die interessante Biografie von unserem Gast vorgestellt. Wir haben heute eine ganz spannende Gründerin zu Gast. Und Daniel, magst du einmal anfangen, Nakima vorzustellen? Sehr gerne. Wir freuen uns nämlich, dass Nakima Steffelbauer zu Gast ist. Nach ihrem Studio und ihrer Promotion an der Harvard University und der Brown University wollte Nakima eigentlich Diplomatin werden. Aber zu der Zeit waren alle Plätze dann auch tatsächlich schon belegt, sodass sie da nicht reinrutschen konnte. Und es gab nicht wirklich eine gute Chance auf eine Abordnung. Also hat sie sich überlegt, hm, mal schauen, was könnte man noch machen? Ihre Freunde arbeiten damals alle in der Tech-Industrie. So hat sie ebenfalls bei einem E-Learning-Startup angefangen. Nach einigen Stationen bei unterschiedlichen Startups hat sie dann 2016 die Not-for-Profit-Organisation Frauenloop gegründet. Ja, was ist Frauenloop? Da gibt es einen neunmonatigen Programmierkurs für Frauen, die 
unterrepräsentiert sind äh, gesellschaftlich. Zum Beispiel, weil sie keinen Uni-Abschluss haben oder weil sie Migrationshintergrund haben oder Asylbewerber sind oder über 35 Jahre. Und diesen Kurs haben mehr als 200 Frauen bereits absolviert. Dieser ist für sie sehr wichtig, weil sie dann nämlich auch Unterstützung haben. Nakima unterstützt sie nämlich auch beim Einstieg in Unternehmen oder auch bei der Neugründung. Nakima hat daneben noch sehr viele weitere Themenbereiche, für die sie sehr brennt. Es hat uns die Vorbereitung gar nicht so einfach gemacht, weil es in der kurzen Zeit gar nicht möglich sein wird, über alle Themen zu sprechen. Einige der Themen beinhalten Frauen in Tech und Diversity in der Startup-Branche. Und hier ist unser Gespräch mit Nakima Steffelbauer. Great, Nakima, you went into tech already in the early Nordies, which uh, seems like a very long time ago. How did you get there? Why did you get there? Maybe tell us a little bit about your story. The reason that I went into tech in 2000, actually, was the first job, was because I was coming out of academia. I'd been at Harvard. I'd had a good experience in terms of being able to learn, being able to do deep dives, getting really into detail about a number of subjects uh, with people all over the world who were very receptive. If you said, you know, I'm a student at Harvard, I'm interested in discussing whatever subject. And tech at the time felt like the kind of industry where everyone was learning. Everyone was interested in learning new skills, figuring out what the future direction would be of the internet. And at the time, the people that I knew who were studying at NYU and at various other places, I was based in New York when I was writing my dissertation, they were all trying to figure out JavaScript. And they said, look, it's the same thing as being at school. So you should check this out because, you know, it's the closest thing you're going to get to an academic introduction to work. You had some plans to become a diplomat, but what, what do you think <laughs> at that time? Who, who could change the world more? Who's, someone who's a diplomat or someone who's a good tech founder? At the time, I would have definitely said a diplomat. But at the time, I was also in a position where when I finished my dissertation and I went around to the UN organizations and the various political advocacy groups uh, with my PhD in Middle Eastern history and black market trade in Syria and Lebanon, and everyone was sort of perplexed because, you know, the government was not paying its dues at the time to the United Nations. The government was completely disinterested in anything going on in North Africa, migration, all of the things that I was sort of had worked on or was interested in. And so I got this sort of all around response from most of the organizations saying, uh, do you have another nationality? So it was very, very difficult to try to get in at that time into international or non-governmental organizations and I started to think that tech was an alternative that made sense because literally everyone I knew who was not going onto Wall Street or going into consulting was going off to Silicon Valley or Silicon Alley, which is what we used to call the street in New York where everyone was located. Um, and they were working in tech and they were talking about it as this revolutionary industry. So since then, a lot has changed. What do you think has actually changed for the better Uh, since you started in 2000 in the tech industry and what changed for the worst? For the better, that's a hard one. Um, <laughs> I, I'm coming off the heels of having watched the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, and I think there are lots of questions about what's changed for the better in light of all that's been listed that's changed for the worst. But I think that in general, the cult of tech having grown to something that is world-changing is both positive and negative. It's, it's positive in the sense that there's still an inspiration for many people to get into the industry who might not otherwise have considered it because it, has such, it ha can have such wide-ranging impact. 
on daily life, on how we live, on what we do, on how we interact. But the negative side of it is that it's a monoculture. It's a monoculture in the United States. It's a monoculture in most places where there's an entrenched group of developers. And it's a bit difficult to understand why there's not more movement, although there's starting to be um, a global awareness that, you know, if you want to build products and services that the whole world can get behind and embrace, you want to do that with a diverse group of developers and a diverse group of thinkers. You don't want to build anything in a monoculture and then try to flog it abroad. You just compared the times. Now let's maybe compare the places. You worked on the East Coast and saw the startup culture there. And now you know the startup culture here in Berlin. What is different? What are similarities? Gosh, where to begin? The difference is when I was working in startups in New York, the, the difference is that nobody knew what we were doing. So I think, and we had limited tools and we were working if in client-facing roles like I was in, we were kind of pushing digitalization projects with clients who were so obsessed with getting it right the first time that it wasn't an iterative mindset, it wasn't a learn-as-you-go mindset. So that would be what you'd experience inside of the company, like the company where I started, click to learn uh, But then you'd go out to a client like New York Stock Exchange, or you'd go out to a client like New York University, and they absolutely did not want any learning on the job. They wanted to know it would be done and perfect, and this new technology, whatever the constraints were, you would figure them out. So you had to kind of do this juggling act of talking to the developers and figuring out what the limitations of the technology were, and then dealing with clients who felt as if you, they just wanted you to make magic. Um, how is that different from what's happening in Berlin today? I see a lot of similarities, I have to say, in terms of working with industries that are s slow or late to the party in terms of digitalizing. And once they realize, okay, we need to get on, yeah. on top to Germany, of this. Welcome to Germany, yeah. <laughs> They, they tend to have the same impatience. They tend to have the same sense that, you know, we don't really care what the constraints are or what the technical uh, considerations are. We just want it done. We want it fast. And we want it to be done right. So um, not so much has changed. Oh, how does it feel to you? Is it, is it a good thing because, you know, okay, I know how to solve it? Or is it a bad thing because it slows everything down? I mean, it's education, right? You have to educate everyone who's working on developing anything digitally as to what you're winning and what you're losing. And now that we've got, you know, so many questions around storage and the cloud and analytics and automation and automated decision-making algorithms, there's a lot of choices that ultimately end up in the hands of either the client or the developer that in many cases they haven't considered or they haven't considered responsibility for, and there are no guidelines. So in a lot of ways, it's, it's not that different than the beginning of when I started working in tech, where there were also no guidelines, but um, there were also, it felt like the stakes were lower. You have talked a lot about AI and ethics as well. So that kind of is a topic I think suits right in. So can you tell us a little bit more about your thoughts on that? Absolutely. That is something that I sort of organically got more involved in because initially the classes that I was offering through Frauenloop were web development and software testing. And then there started to be a little bit of interest in data analytics, data visualization, and little by little that moved into the area of machine learning. 
And so I spent a lot of time trying to understand from the various levels of data scientists that were teaching how, you know, how we needed to introduce machine learning and how we needed to teach algorithmic uh, development in order to make it make sense to women who didn't otherwise have any exposure. And as a result, I got really interested in how ubiquitous algorithms already are and how much they already affect so many of the platforms and the products that everyone uses oftentimes without realizing oh this is automatic this is someone programmed this this is there's no human connected to this yeah there was a stunning example yesterday on twitter with the cropping the image i don't know if you've seen it so if there's a a, a picture stripe uh, with a with a guy and a girl and twitter is cropping the preview picture it always it decides for the guy. Or when it's uh, between a, a black or white person, it always decides for the, the white persons. When you saw this example, what, what have you had in your mind? It's not new. It's not new. This is the kind of example that Timnit Gebru and Joy Bulamwini and Ruha Benjamin have been writing about and talking about for years. And it's one of the things that drove me to start writing about and talking about this subject um, when I went to the European parliament and gave a talk about specific experiences that I'd had with financial service algorithms that were not able to correctly identify my face, given three examples, my driver license photo, my passport photo, and a selfie photo. And after having, you know, basically been sent to the fraud department because the algorithm was coming up with an error instead of identifying me, I was... Um, trying to figure out who was responsible for addressing this problem, and no one was. Everyone in the fraud department was sort of at a loss. You know, They didn't know what went wrong, which means this algorithm is in mass use to the public, and nobody really understands how it's making decisions or if there are errors, how to mitigate those. So there was no point of human address that you could escalate this to a human who would look at the photo... Nothing. It was just kind of, sorry, we can't identify you. But do you see somehow in the tech scene someone is taking over responsibility at a certain point? Or is it just everyone is talking about it but nothing is changing? So far I have been privy to some conversations at the EU level. I know there are lots of committees that are meeting and trying to create strategies and guidelines for industry, also here in Germany at the Interior Ministry. But I know that the scary part of it, especially working in industry, seeing what's happening in insurance, seeing what's happening in banking, there isn't any oversight yet. And time is really of the essence because while there are no rules, if you rush something out and it's in mass production at scale, then it's going to be much more difficult later to say, okay, we need to rein these so, algorithms in. So I understand it right. You think that just regulation is, could be a solution? I think that some kind of guidelines are always helpful. I mean, right now the problem is that we have none. So it's not that you know I'm, I'm pro-regulation, but that I'm pro some kind of guideline or you know there should be some floor in terms of how these algorithms operate and also mitigating harm. If people have clear incidents where they've been wronged or the algorithm is making unfair recommendations uh, or predictions, there should be a human somewhere that you can address this issue with and not leave it up to the sales department of some private company. So we jumped right into some of the <laughs> debatable topics. 
I would love to talk a little bit about your company, Frauenloop, as well. So sure. um, you're also working at Ergo Digital at the moment, um, full-time, I think? Yes. And next to it, as you mentioned it as one of your side, side projects, in uh, quotation marks, you founded Frauenloop four years ago. Can yeah. you tell us a bit about the story, where the idea came from, and was, what ha has happened since the last four years? Lots has happened <laughs> in the last four years. Yeah, I, I founded Frauenloop as um, a gemeinnützige UG because I thought that it was much simpler uh, to do that than to deal with wrangling seven different people and ideas and opinions and decision-making over everything. And I really wanted to be able to have some kind of quality control over the type of learning the type of vision that I had for mentorship and the type of students that I wanted to um, support with the company. So it made it very easy by setting up um, an uge to be able to do exactly what I wanted and to not be dependent on any kind of government or local funding at uh, the start. Um, and that meant that, you know, I could focus on the, the people that I thought needed the most support, which were women who were being left out of the tech scene and being left out of opportunities to see themselves represented with role models who were themselves working in software development, you know, technical development, um, mentoring their own study of tech. So this is, a, if I'm right, it's a, a nine-month program. So what exactly is happening there? So maybe you can just give an example from Uh, one of uh, the participants. So the three cycles are um, three progressive cycles of three months each. Each cycle starts off with the idea that you are both um, getting a general introduction to the subject, you're getting a more detailed introduction to the subject, and then you're working almost exclusively on a project that's hands-on that you can add to your portfolio, your technical portfolio. Um, so at this point where we have a web development cohort, we have a data visualization cohort, we have a machine learning cohort, um, you would be starting off with web development, let's say, doing the basic HTML, CSS, some vanilla JavaScript, no particular frameworks. Uh, the next cycle you would focus on a framework and you would be working, let's say, in React and you would be really um, hammering home that programming practice in that particular language. And then the third cycle you would be focused on building collaboratively, ideally in an agile team, same as on a paid job, um, either front-end or back-end or full-stack programming um, functionality that you would then be able to point to in a job interview as the results of your combined studies. And it's a nine-month full-time program, or can you also do it on the side? It was specifically designed to be after work or after whatever uh, it is that you're doing during the day, because my assumption was that There, was, there is a large group of women in Berlin who either have childcare responsibilities or have uh, full-time jobs that are not necessarily leading them in the way they want to go professionally, um, who would need uh, an evening program to accommodate whatever else they're doing. So it's always been in the evenings. The first year and a half, we were twice a week, uh, Tuesday, Thursdays, and uh, nine, six till 9 p.m. And now it's once a week. But there's lots of homework, there's lots of Slack collaboration, and at this point, based on COVID, we're part remote and part in person, but we've done both. It's usually been a face-to-face -face program, 
And in the summer, we did the first three months, it was fully remote. And now we're just able to start to do a mixture of remote and in person. And how many participants have you had in the last uh, four years, roughly? Oh. <laughs> um, well, we started off with a pilot that was, you know, 10 women, German and asylum seekers. We expanded every cycle since then. Now we average, instead of 10 women, 30 to 35 women per cohort. So it's, it's easily 180 to 200 women. Um, but we definitely are open to, you know, women who are coming in for only two of the cycles. That's what we require at a minimum instead of all three. Because ideally, um, for the most successful candidates, what's happened is that they put in two to three three-month cycles and then another three months of simply resume preparation, CV interviewing, technical interviewing, salary negotiation, practice, and those things all together get them prepared to be successful in a job application. I mean, back then when you started, you had this vision to empower the participants of the program to get a better career. And now you see many results. What are you very proud of? The jobs. <laughs> I mean, that's where I started and that's what I thought was, was missing. And um, in terms of what I wanted to do with this program, I wanted to get company, really. I wanted to not be working at and visiting and networking with tech companies in Berlin where there were no women in the tech area, in the management area, there were more women from more backgrounds, more age groups, more places in the world. And I wanted to make that the focus of Frauenloop instead of, you know, empowerment or some general fuzzy term. I wanted it to be about, are you able to actually change your career and make it into an um, upwardly mobile um, tech role? And so I started with jobs and worked backwards And that's, that's something I'm really happy about. And you mentioned that there's quite a lot of women who come to you when they are um, trying to decide whether or not to take a, a job at a specific company or not. I think you wrote an article, How to Avoid Terrible Tech Companies, and another one, How to Vet a uh, VC-funded starter. Is that yes. right? Um, so what do you tell those women who come to you, um, and what kind of questions do they, do they ask you? They ask me the gamut of questions around why is it so difficult for me in this industry how to avoid terrible tech companies came out of uh, I remember when I wrote it I was in a hotel in Dusseldorf on a business trip and I just had so many inquiries in the week before from women who were you know Eastern European women who were applying for tech roles and uh, they were being asked you know, where their children were and who was going to take care of their families if they had to do business travel. You know, I had Syrian and Egyptian tech workers who were saying, ah, you know, I'm being harassed and I have no one to, to, to tell about this. You know, what should I do? Because I don't trust that the company will not kick me out and blame me for the problem. Um, and then finally, I had a uh, a physics uh, PhD, a professional physicist who was telling me that she'd had an unsuccessful experience that she blamed herself for in a tech company because they told her, you know, you're too technical. <laughs> and she felt terrible about it. And at that point, something snapped. And I realized, you know, it, it kind of doesn't matter what you're being told. You know, if you're being too, told you're too technical, everyone else in sort of the, the Frauenloop cohort is being told you're not technical enough, then it's 
clearly nothing to do with the, the specific skills that you bring or don't bring. It has something to do with the expectation of the company, of the management, of you know the investment that they are willing to make or not willing to make in um, their team. So what I put into that article uh, is very similar to what I put into the How to Vet Venture Funded Startups article, which is basically all of the things to keep in mind if you are an employee who's looking for a company that you can invest in yourself and you can grow with. And that's, you know, signs that someone at the organization cares about the things you care about. So rather than listening to the pitch or looking at the salary or thinking about the perks, you know, what are you seeing when you visit? What are you hearing when you talk about the things that you value about working in tech? And do they match? And have you seen things changing a bit in the Berlin tech scene? Looking at your face, I might know the answer. Yeah, sounds, sounds Which like things? a no. <laughs> <laughs> Which things? I think it depends. Um, I think that there's certainly, uh, based on the last workshops I've given on salary negotiation and also um, a recent Berlin and Paris workshop that was uh, remote that was about the tech ecosystem and some of the jobs that people are not as aware of, not as keen to learn about. Um, it seems that things are changing in the sense that people are becoming more interested in vetting these companies and checking out what their culture is before they dive in and just grab whatever opportunities are offered. Do you think that you would have started this company in the U.S. when you wouldn't have been here, moved to Germany? Probably not. Why not? Probably not, because I think that this was very much a reactive uh, founding, and this was something that I did in order to address a specific challenge or a specific need that was not being met. And I didn't, I didn't see the same level of interest in representing and advocating for women who were being systematically excluded from the tech scene in New York or in Boston or in Toronto, but I saw that here. So that was really the reason that I thought, well, if no one else is going to focus on women and do this in a way that is respectful and that has some uh, leverages, some understanding that I hoped that I had from my work in the Middle East, then I'll do it. You mentioned that uh, Frauenloop is a gemeinnützige GmbH, so not for profit. At the same time, I've heard you say my company quite often. Is that something that like is just the mindset, the way you run Frauenloop, or um, do you see it as a social enterprise, or like is, it, is there no term to describe it? I hate the word social enterprise. Okay. <laughs> Why? Uh, because I think that my experience of that in Germany has been it's a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's an enterprise that no one expects much of. And if it's a company, then you have targets and you have outcomes and you can evaluate the company based on what it produces. A social enterprise is something loosey-goosey in between those things and you get a lot more credit for trying than for necessarily achieving. So that's the reason for me. It's, it's about a company and this is being run as a company. And what did you learn? So you've uh, founded Frauenloop four years ago. You've gotten over the first few years when many, many other companies fail. What did you learn in those four years? Gosh, I learned that building community is incredibly important, especially in a city like Berlin that's rapidly changing. I felt 
that this would be something that hopefully when I started it, I wanted to see grow based on word of mouth and based on developing a reputation of genuinely helping women to make it into tech. And I'm happy to say that that's been something that I've learned that if you do you know, what you say you're going to do. And um, if you genuinely encourage women to work with each other, they they do that. And you don't need to monitor and micromanage. And, you know, I've learned a lot about delegation along the way, but it's definitely something that um, running Frauenloop has taught me. I'm very happy about it. Let's look into the future for the next four years. What are your plans? Do you want to uh, expand Frauenloop? Are you, uh, yeah growing by yourself are you looking for partners uh, what are your plans for the next four years more tech company collaborations and partnerships that's something that started in earnest this year um, this year and last year because I've always worked with tech companies either to house the organization at Wuga at Microsoft um, now at Forto and it's been amazing to start to partner with organizations like GitHub, organizations like HubSpot, in order to get volunteers and to get um, some of the expertise that they have around placements and also jobs and internships for the Frauenloop audience. When uh, looking at your profile, I saw so many side projects. Um, I don't think we have the time to cover all of them, but one that caught my eyes was the Refugees on Rails program in 2016. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the program was all about and uh, how, like, what you learned during that time? Essentially, the program was targeted exclusively at asylum seekers and it was targeted to help them to learn programming, web development as a way to build some stability and build some career prospects after migrating to, to Germany. Um, that was a program that kind of started and then sort of went on hiatus and then restarted when I took over the program directorship. And it was exclusively web development. Ruby on Rails was the only language we were, we were teaching. And it was with two exceptions that I personally recruited from language schools. It was all men. So um, that was a very different experience. And at some point when I started Frauenloop, the first three, six months after I started Frauenloop, I was sort of running in between the Refugees on Rails group that was all men and the Frauenloop group that was all women. And it was a bit ridiculous, but it was definitely, I think, uh, necessary. And I, I learned a lot from the students that I worked with at Refugees on Rails as well as. So when you ran in between those two groups, was there actually a big difference in how people reacted? or Because like, I think sometimes it's also uh, like we talk about the women and the men and like it also depends very much on kind of the, the group you're in, right? Well, there was a huge difference in the sense that one of the founding principles of Frauenloop was that I wanted to remove the majority of the mentors being men and I wanted the women to be able to learn how to engage technically without constantly having to ch have a man kind of confirm that they had done whatever they were doing correctly. Um, so that was from the very beginning. I had volunteers from NYU Abu Dhabi and other places who were uh, women who were mentoring the women in Frauenloop when we were back at the Fab Lab. And, uh, and they were mostly male instructors who were helping um, the guys at Refugees on Rails. So it was a completely different environment, completely different vibe. Um, but I think that the whole idea was always to 
make it as comfortable as possible for people who are learning in a second language, if not a third language, and to make it as accessible as possible to get into the tech industry because I, I really felt that as an immigrant, as a woman, as someone who rarely sees myself reflected in the tech industry anywhere, um, it was important to give the students, whether they be men from you know with asylum backgrounds or or women from wherever, the same kind of support and encouragement that I myself would like to have. And you're also a fellow of a new European initiative. It's called the Included VC Program. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about that? What's going on there? Yes, that is something I got interested in after finishing my MBA in 2018 and realizing that uh, venture was sort of where it was at if you wanted to address some of the concerns uh, about what type of companies, tech companies are being founded and funded and understanding how that works in Europe would be key to not making empty comparisons with the U.S. because it's a very different ecosystem here. So the included VC program came around at just the right time. The inaugural program, which started last October, I'm part of still. And um, that really is a deep dive into all of the various aspects of funding and running and supporting various different verticals through your fund. Um, there are 10 different European funds that are backing it, and we get preferential access to all of those partners and principals and associates in terms of how they do their jobs and what they think has changed with COVID and basically how they define success and what kind of relationship they have to the startups that they fund. So that's amazing. <laughs> Um, you did a PhD and an MBA whilst also running a company plus working with a lot of different companies um, to help them understand how they can go through their digital transformation. Um, it sounds like a lot of things happening at the same time. And we totally saw your entrepreneurial mindset. So can you tell the audience uh, what you think, what do you need to have in order to found a company and uh, be entrepreneurial in what you do? Resilience. <laughs> you need resilience. You need a lot of, um, I think, multitasking skills for sure, which is why I think women are especially well-suited to the role of entrepreneurs. Um, I think you need to be willing to take and incorporate criticism and critiques because it's not all going to be positive and the hardest thing in the world is to learn to let go and to delegate and to sort of determine what you have to be personally responsible for and what you don't in terms of running a company. Um, I think that doing the MBA as late as I did instead of right after my PhD, which is when I wanted to do it, um, has been amazing because it made it so clear to me how much I needed to manage my time you know, manage my life, you know, two kids at home, husband at home, lots of responsibilities that are all competing. And what it made possible was after I finished the, the MBA, I felt like I have so much time. <laughs> I can do so many other things because, you know, I realized this is, this is what entrepreneurial life is like. You're constantly balancing competing um, priorities and that's a good thing. So the aim of this startup um, series is also to inspire women to become entrepreneurs, to found their own businesses. 
Do you have any ideas on what kind of companies should be funded next here in Berlin? There are so many. I think that the specific to the COVID crisis, I definitely am not the only one who's wondered, you know, what is happening in terms of uh, e-learning, what's happening in terms of virtual reality, where are all the solutions that can help our infrastructure, our educational infrastructure, our government infrastructure to function better when there are pandemics that limit the amount of face-to-face -face contact, paper-based communication we can have. I definitely think that environmental startups, environmentally conscious startups are critical because, I mean, half of California is burning down right now, much of Siberia as well. And it's, it's incredibly sad to think that with all of the capital that's built up and waiting for deployment in VC that, you know, here in Europe, we're still trying to copy scooter companies and we're not, you know, working on a little bit more important problems. So this is a, a pretty long to-do list. Um, on the other hand, uh, when we look at statistics, uh, I think in Germany, 15% of all founders are women. So uh, what, with your international view, What, what could we do in Germany to get this number up? Part of what I think is missing in terms of having the confidence to found your own company is in Germany, number one, having the stamina to go through all of the paperwork and the bureaucracy because there's a lot of it. There's also the lack of a, so far, um, the lack of a coherent um, stock plan, employee stock plan, um, strategy. So in terms of tax advantages, that doesn't really exist yet. Um, but I feel like in terms of just encouraging more people to start up, from what I know with Frauenloop and the communities that that's exposed me to, plenty of women with non-German backgrounds would like to start companies, but they get discouraged when they're not taken seriously at meetups and they get discouraged when they're not taken seriously because of language challenges and they get discouraged because uh, they don't see themselves reflected in a lot of the uh, gatherings and the initiatives that are intended to encourage entrepreneurship. So those are areas where creating a more welcoming environment is what, it's what has worked well in the U.S. It's what has gotten us to a point where plenty of people, at least prior to the current administration, were immigrating to the U.S. with the explicit intention of founding companies without any concern for being ridiculed or being dismissed or being unable to win funding because of their place of origin. That would be amazing to see in Berlin and in Germany generally. That's a good goal, I think, yeah. So, Nakima, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Wir freuen uns übrigens schon auf die nächste Ausgabe der Female Founders Edition. Die findet am 21. September 2020 statt. Und wenn Sie dabei sein möchten, schreiben Sie mir an techbriefing.mediapioneer.com und ich sage Ihnen dann als erstes Bescheid, wenn es Boardingpässe gibt. Kommen wir jetzt zu meinen High- und Lowlights der Woche. Los geht's mit dem Highlight. Elon Musk will den Preis für Elektroautos deutlich senken. Jede Woche ist der Kerl ja mit seinem Unternehmen Tesla in den Schlagzeilen. 
In dieser Woche konnten wir zum Beispiel beobachten, wie Tesla-Manager sich den Vorwürfen von Gegnern des Werks in Brandenburg gestellt haben. Außerdem ist eine wichtige Hürde im Genehmigungsverfahren in Sachen Wasserversorgung genommen worden. Also die Gigafactory in Brandenburg wächst und gedeiht. Und währenddessen träumt Elon Musk von günstigeren Preisen für seine Autos. In drei Jahren will Tesla die Preise für die Batterien um 56 Prozent drücken. Das ist deswegen interessant, weil dann ein Elektroauto konkurrenzfähiger zum Betrieb eines Verbrenners wird. Das wirkt sich dann auch auf den Kaufpreis aus. 25.000 US-Dollar soll ein Tesla Model 3 dann kosten. In Deutschland zahlen Tesla-Fans bisher 42.000 Euro. Kommen wir zum Lowlight der Woche. 100 Tage Corona-Warn-App und 18,2 Millionen Mal wurde die App bisher heruntergeladen. Und eine Zahl hat mich sehr interessiert, jetzt ist sie mal rausgekommen, wie viele sind denn dann auch tatsächlich über ein positives Testergebnis informiert worden? 5000 Nutzer. Da hätte ich ehrlich gesagt mit mehr gerechnet, aber es ist ja auch was Positives, wenn die App nicht so häufig dann anschlägt. Bald soll es neue Funktionen geben. Die App wird künftig auch Krankheitssymptome abfragen. Das haben die Macher bei SAP angekündigt. Die Eingabe der Symptome ist aber freiwillig. Die Daten werden auch lokal auf dem Smartphone nur abgespeichert. Aber warum ist das Ganze jetzt mein Lowlight? Seien wir mal ehrlich, 18,2 Millionen, das ist eigentlich erstmal eine gute Zahl. Aber wenn wir überlegen, wie viele Deutsche ein Smartphone haben. Aber wenn man sich die Wachstumskurve der Corona-Warn-App-Nutzer anschaut, dann ist die gefühlt flacher als die Zahl der Neuinfizierten. Der Anfangshype ist verflogen. Ich würde mir wünschen, wenn noch deutlich mehr die Warn-App auch tatsächlich einsetzen. Mein Kopf der Woche, das ist Yvonne Kunane. Sie ist Juristin bei Facebook und hat eine eidesstattliche Versicherung an ein irisches Gericht abgegeben. Und darin heißt es interessanterweise, es ist, also Facebook, nicht klar, wie es unter diesen Umständen seine Dienste Facebook und Instagram in der EU weiterführen kann. Droht da Facebook etwa mit dem Rückzug aus Europa? Folgendes steckt dahinter. Die irische Datenschutzbehörde prüft zurzeit, ob Facebook seine Daten in die USA transferieren kann. Denn die Datenschutzgrundverordnung der EU, die verbietet es, persönliche Daten in Nicht-EU-Staaten zu transferieren. Bisher gab es ja das Safe Harbor Abkommen oder auch das Privacy Shield mit den USA, die das möglich gemacht haben. Aber der Europäische Gerichtshof, der hatte ja beide Abkommen gekippt. Wie geht es also jetzt in diesem konkreten Fall weiter? Facebook hat gesagt, naja, wir können uns dann nicht vorstellen, Facebook und Instagram in der EU weiterzuführen. Als Drohung will Facebook diese Äußerung aber nicht verstanden wissen. Aber hey, im Raum steht es trotzdem. Kommen wir zum Update der Woche. Im letzten Tech-Briefing haben wir uns ja mit den Klimazielen von Apple und Microsoft beschäftigt. Und gerade als wir das Tech-Briefing veröffentlicht haben, da hat auch Facebook die eigenen Klimaziele bekannt gegeben. Deswegen schauen wir da jetzt auch noch mal kurz drauf als kurzes Update. Bis 2030 war ja auch so eine magische Zahl von Apple und Microsoft. Da will Facebook auch klimaneutral sein. Das beginnt dann auch schon bei Zulieferern, aber auch die Arbeitswege der Mitarbeiter oder Dienstreisen werden da berücksichtigt. Facebook setzt auch auf erneuerbare Energiequellen. Es sollen auch Einsparungen vorgenommen werden. Und schon bis Ende des aktuellen Jahres will der Konzern CO2-neutral sein. Aber die User, die Nutzer von Facebook, die sollen auch aufgeklärt werden. Und zwar über klimatische Veränderungen. 
Und deswegen wird ein Infozentrum aufgebaut, so ähnlich wie wir das jetzt schon rund um Covid-19 kennen. Dort gibt es ja eine Informationsseite, die über Neuheiten informiert und ein Klimainformationszentrum soll es dann auch in Deutschland, Frankreich, Großbritannien und in den USA geben. Das war das Tech Briefing für diese Woche. Wenn es Ihnen gefällt, da würde ich mich auch über Ihre Kommentare freuen. Zum Beispiel bei Apple Podcasts können Sie Sterne hinterlassen. Wenn Sie dort fünf Sterne hinterlassen, vielleicht auch noch mit ein, zwei Sätzen, warum Sie das Tech Briefing gerne hören, wird uns das sehr nicht nur freuen, sondern auch helfen. Denn dann haben auch andere Hörerinnen und Hörer die Chance, tatsächlich auf diesen Podcast aufmerksam zu werden. Danke fürs Zuhören. Mein Name ist Daniel Fiene. Bis zur nächsten Ausgabe des The Pioneer Tech Briefings. Die kommt dann schon am kommenden Donnerstag. Dann starten wir gemeinsam in die digitale Zukunft. Musik